Net neutrality is the principle that internet service providers and governments regulating the internet should treat all data on the internet the same. Debates around net neutrality can be as contentious as subjects like global warming or the debate between tabs versus spaces. To a hardcore free market economist, net neutrality sounds suspicious. Why would it be good for the government to regulate prices on the data that passes around wires that are owned by a corporation? The problem is that a large portion of the United States can only be served by wires that are owned by a single company. In those instances, the company that owns the wires has monopoly pricing power over the data delivered to homes in those geographic regions. Quincy Larson is the founder of Free Code Camp, and he's a frequent author of internet-based articles that are on Medium. He returns to Software Engineering Daily in this episode to make the case for net neutrality. I was convinced by some of his arguments and less convinced by others. In any case, I think you will find this episode entertaining and informative. If you're like me, after this episode, you will have at least a slightly better understanding of the issues surrounding net neutrality that were quite cloudy for me before this episode. Quincy Larson is the founder of Free Code Camp and a frequent author of internet-based articles. Quincy, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Today we're going to talk about net neutrality, and in order to prepare for the show, I actually looked up the definition of net neutrality according to Wikipedia because you hear people talking about different ways of framing net neutrality. According to Wikipedia, net neutrality is the principle that internet service providers and governments regulating the internet should treat all data on the internet the same. Why is net neutrality important to you? Net neutrality is vitally important to me and to pretty much any company that wants to provide content on the internet, what we call content providers, and to the average consumer who wants to be able to access that content in a reasonably fast way without interruption or without interference by internet service providers or ISPs. The reasons why it's so important are, it's an existential question. Like if somebody wants to go to your website and your website's suddenly not accessible because of interference on the part of the ISP, then the user is just going to go somewhere else. Hmm. Do we have net neutrality today? Yes, we do. We have net neutrality, which was enshrined in a ruling by the Federal Communications Commission here in the U.S. in 2015. Basically, we, net neutrality, or the Title II Common Carrier Regulation, as it's called, enshrines in the law that Internet service providers cannot block traffic based on its content, like legal traffic, they can block illegal traffic. They cannot throttle traffic and they cannot accept money in order to prioritize other traffic. So hypothetically, let's say Netflix wanted to get faster access or wanted to reach consumers faster. It's illegal for the ISPs to accept money from Netflix to do that. Hmm. Well, what are some problems that could occur if we had a lack of net neutrality? The main problem that the telecoms, in fact, the uh, the president of AT&T has actually come out and said it publicly, 
they want to charge content providers. They want to charge all the different websites out there, all the different blogs, all the different educational services, all the different mom and pop Chinese restaurants that have their menu online. They want to charge all those companies for the privilege of traveling through their network. And the problem, of course, with that is all those people have already paid. They've already paid to have a broad, like a broadband connection. In many cases, they paid twice. They paid to send all of their data up to an internet, a virtual private server. You know, put it up on Amazon EC2 or a DigitalOcean droplet or Google、mm-hmm. Compute Cloud. They've already paid money to send that up there, and then they're paying for the bandwidth from that to their end users. And the users have already paid for their own broadband that they can use to pull that down. So the telecoms have already gotten money from both sides, but they want more. And that's、mm-hmm. really the main reason why the telecoms lobby—they've been lobbying heavily to get rid of net neutrality for years. So I hear what you're saying there, but isn't this the type of thing that the free market works out? If the ISPs were unregulated. Wouldn't the free market and the costs and the service levels just work themselves out? Yeah, in theory, absolutely. If you had, you know, a truly free market and you had legislation that was clear and, and basically allowed for new entrants to come in, you didn't have unassailable barriers to entry, you didn't have monopoly power, you didn't have regulatory capture. Unfortunately. <laughs> As you can probably guess, I'm about to say we have all those things. We have basically three massive corporations that control a vast majority of internet access in the United States. The fixed line, and then and also the mobile broadband, controlled by just a handful of corporations that are extremely powerful, extremely profitable, have extremely large lobbies, and the barriers to entry to getting into those industries is so high that even Google, the second largest corporation. In the world, by market capitalization, has had an extremely difficult time, and in fact, they've scaled back their plans to roll out fixed line broadband because it's just so difficult to get into the industry.、Hmm. And repealing net neutrality will not change that reality.、Hmm. So we'll get into some more hypotheticals: how the world would be without net neutrality, or with different versions of net neutrality. But let's talk a little bit more about. The players in this space. So, when we're talking about ISPs, who are we referring to? Are we referring to Comcast? Are we referring to Facebook? What is an ISP? So, an ISP is it stands for Internet Service Provider, and it's basically the service that you pay to get your broadband internet access. So, in the United States, there are basically four large corporations that control a vast majority of connectivity. There's AT and T, and I'm going to go ahead and when I Tell you these corporations. I'm going to also tell you their net operating income, basically the profit they're making after tax. So AT&T made 16 billion dollars after tax in 2016. Verizon, which controls a lot of the mobile broadband and, and you know the 4G and and the future iterations of basically wave-based broadband. So Verizon made 13 billion dollars last year. Comcast. The most hated corporation in the United States for several years in a row, eight billion dollars, and then Charter, which recently acquired Time Warner, eight billion dollars. So, to give an idea of how an internet player might look at this problem, what about Netflix? What does Netflix lobby for? And I realize Netflix is totally orthogonal to what a 
an ISP is, but I think it helps illustrate just how some other companies are thinking about this. So Netflix is for net neutrality. Back in the day, Netflix probably couldn't have happened without net neutrality because the fees that they would have had to pay the ISPs would have been so egregious. But now Netflix is so big and so profitable that they could easily afford to pay these fees. What Netflix is worried about now is all the new entrants. You know, the incumbents are extremely powerful and can afford to pay this. Just to give you an idea of how consolidated the internet is today, about half of all internet traffic originates from 30 content providers, including, you know, Google and Yahoo and Netflix and Facebook. So basically Netflix is very much pro-net neutrality, even though they don't need it anymore from an ideological standpoint, because they realized that without it, they couldn't have succeeded. Google itself has, has come out and said, Sergey Brin quoted that he didn't think Google would have been able to exist without the open internet and that net neutrality was very important to Google being able to come about and gain its initial traction. So another player is the government, namely the FCC. Recently, Ajit Pai was named the chairman of the FCC. He previously worked at Verizon, and he said that his goal is to deregulate providers so that they could make even more money and invest in faster infrastructure. Why are you skeptical of Ajit's proposal here to just deregulate everything, make more money for these ISPs, and you know they'll reinvest it into infrastructure? Yeah, well, I don't believe that they're going to reinvest significant portions of that in infrastructure because they're already basically taking their net income that I talked about earlier, these, these billions of dollars they make every year, and they're just dispersing it to to shareholders. And until they choose to sit down and have like that uncomfortable talk with their shareholders, like, hey, you're going to make a lot less money this year because we're, we're going to basically claw back our proceeds and, and, and invest them, reinvest them in upgrading infrastructure. You know, that's going to take several consecutive years to, to go in and fix all the, the various deficiencies. And we can get into the, what exactly those deficiencies are later, but basically the things that are preventing the internet from being quote well, fast enough and preventing these ISPs from going into more rural markets and providing them with internet access and things like that. So Ajit Pai, he worked as a lawyer for Verizon. He's from telecom and he got nominated to the FCC as a commissioner. And now he's the chairman of the FCC. Former chairman Tom Wheeler stepped down with the presidential transition. Tom Wheeler was also from, he previously worked as an executive for one of the major ISPs. But basically, Ajit Pai has, has said he wants to quote-unquote take a weed whacker to the law and get rid of net neutrality as quickly as he can. And I think that that's a big mistake. I think that he's either coming from an ideological perspective of regulation is bad, we should get rid of regulation, or, you know, quite likely, he's just in the pocket of the massive telecom lobbies that spend tens of millions of dollars each on lobbying and campaign contributions and an unknown amount on campaign advertising every year. As you said, Google and Netflix might not have been able to get off the ground if not for net neutrality. You also hypothesize that, quote, without net neutrality, if a small business owner can't afford to pay Comcast, Comcast will slow down traffic to their website or shut it off entirely. 
As a result, users will go to websites that are faster because they could afford to pay up, sites like Facebook. So this picture that you're portraying here is somebody wants to stand up their own website and Comcast says, well, you know, if you want us to send those bits through the pipe, you're going to have to pay us a toll. And so as a result, those users will say, you know what, let's just host it on Facebook because then Facebook will have to pay the toll and that's that's fine. We'll just defer the cost to Facebook. Of course, you see that as problematic because it would centralize control into Facebook. And I find your narrative here somewhat compelling, but you know the world is quite different than it was when Netflix got started. It's quite different than it was when Google got started. There are a lot of options other than Facebook as well, and you know there's all these platforms that could aggregate demand here. Just like you're saying, Facebook would aggregate demand and pay for access to the pipe. You could see people going on Squarespace or WordPress or even AWS. You could say, I am going to host my stuff on AWS. Maybe AWS raises their Amazon tax a little bit more. But it wouldn't be so bad as to make it impossible to own a small business. So couldn't a small business owner just move their site to one of these behemoths and have the behemoth do the fighting for them? One of the issues is the behemoths are also in the process of consolidating market power. You know, Facebook and and Google and, you know, to some extent, Twitter and Snapchat and some of these other platforms, Medium, Quora. These platforms are essentially kind of trying to create new features and draw people into their platform so they can have content creators, so they can basically get more money through ads. And basically about 85% of all advertising spent or all money spent on online advertising just goes to Facebook and Google now. Like that's how dire things are for the newspapers, for example. So newspapers are now kind of a small business in the sense that they have subscriptions, they have advertising dollars, but it's it's a pittance compared to what's going into these platforms. These platforms don't have the burden of actually creating content. They basically just algorithmically curate content created for free by users. So yeah, I mean, you're you're making those existing platforms more powerful and you're giving yet another incentive to shepherd people into these platforms and away from owning their own web domain or their own service that is free from the terms of service of Google, free from the terms of service of Facebook and free from the potential censorship that they could bring down, free from the, you know, the black box, the curative black box. Like when I search for something on Facebook, who knows? why things come up the way they are. It's all completely opaque. And, you know, Facebook in the past has deprioritized people who don't pay. For example, Facebook basically initially was trying to get all these brands to invest all this money and energy in telling their their users to go out and like their Facebook page so they'd receive updates in their news feeds from the Facebook. Whenever they posted something on, new, on Facebook, it would show up in that user's news feed. Well, Facebook basically kind of bait and switched it. And now a brand like Coca-Cola, if they want to reach their users, they're still going to have to pay for advertising, even though they have all those people who've liked it. It's not a, it's not really a fair playing field for them because Facebook has the incentive of trying to get to maximize the amount of money they can extract from them. So you're shepherding people by virtue of like saying, oh, well, this platform will cover the tax for you. You're shepherding people into that platform. And then later, only later, once they've been locked in, will they realize the consequences of that in the form of higher fees that they have to pay for advertising to reach their own users. 
let's step back a second because you know throughout the years we've defined i think you're portraying a world that is becoming more centralized in your mind what i would argue is that the world is actually becoming more decentralized like We've defined the internet in different ways throughout the years. So our conception of the internet in the 1980s, for example, was a bulwark against nuclear attack. We basically said, this is the thing where if a nuclear bomb hits, this is what we're going to use to communicate. And then in the 1990s, the internet was what you used to access AOL, you know, and to talk about centralization. I mean, that was just everything AOL. And then in 2000, this was just something that it was fun to use from your computer, but certainly you would never use the internet from your phone. It seems like the idea of, quote, net neutrality, it's almost like this make America great again sort of thing, where it's like, let's go back to the good old days when the net was neutral and we didn't have all these centralized players. To me, it seems like a decentralized. If you have Quora and Facebook and Medium and WordPress and Squarespace and AWS and Google Cloud and Facebook, if I didn't already mention it, it seems like we're letting a thousand flowers bloom. Doesn't our conception of the internet get continually destroyed and reborn? And what what makes you so sure that this that this less quote unquote neutral world is going to be definitively better? So if you look historically, if you look at the history of informational technologies, I'm just going to walk you through some of them. Telegrams. Originally, people were sending telegrams locally, and then they created these national telegram lines that people could use. Eventually, telegrams became consolidated behind a single company, Western Union. And then the telephone came along. Alexander Graham Bell invented it, and then a guy named Theodore Vail took over what became AT&T at the time, and really grew it to this behemoth. And he was kind of like an enlightened, shall we say, benevolent monopolist. He wanted to expand it because he thought it was better for everybody if everybody was able to interconnect with one another and just use the same infrastructure. And it dodged the messiness and, and the waste associated with competition, right? Because competition is inherently wasteful. It's people, you know, at war with one another, just like war is wasteful. So they'll federated all the different local companies and, and then eventually he retired and, and somebody who is not so benevolent took over AT&T and that person proceeded to basically extract rent what we call economic rent which is way beyond normal profit it's basically like gouging people because you can and as a result you know people were paying exorbitant amounts of money to call across state lines. They were paying even more to call internationally. They were paying money to rent a phone. And and one of the, the ways that AT&T was able to solidify its monopoly was to reach out to the government and basically get the, its monopoly enshrined in the government as like a quote-unquote natural monopoly. So telephones, used, you used to have these local party lines. You used to have farmers wiring you know lines across their house. And quickly, this kind of Cambrian explosion of telephone became a consolidated nightmare of long distance bills and paying money to rent phones and not being able to attach devices. Like you couldn't even attach a modem because that violated the terms of service for, for AT&T. So, so that took, you know, a great amount of political will to overthrow those rules and open up the telephone lines, you know, to some extent they got disrupted, but that took decades. Right. And then the same thing with radio, 
radio it used to be everybody had their radio station locally what happened the advertising driven model started to take over and people started to realize we can get much more economies of scale if we just have a few radio stations then they went and they you know lobbied to basically carve out huge sections of the bandwidth so that the radio stations there were just a few dominant radio stations in every city and then you know tv came online and basically it was initially kind of local access television and then that got consolidated to where there were just really two big networks and if you weren't on cbs or nbc you weren't on tv and that's all anybody watched you had literally tens of millions of people tuning in to watch i love lucy like a significant portion of the people who were alive in america would tune in and watch the exact same show and you had the the advent of mass culture so that was tv and and now with the internet really we're experiencing the same thing we had this cambrian explosion you know, AOL is kind of an aberration. It's a, it's a good point that that was a significant chunk. I don't know if it ever even reached half of the internet penetration. I'd actually be interested in looking up the exact figures. But that AOL kind of rose and fall. And ironically, AOL was purchased in the last year or two by one of the cable companies, by one of the ISPs, just like Yahoo. Verizon purchased both AOL and Yahoo. And all these ISPs are now purchasing content providers for the purpose of basically prioritizing access to their own content over Netflix. Like, why mm. would you watch Netflix and pay a bunch of money to watch it when mm. you can watch Cox's TV series or Comcast's, their streaming service instead? So basically, they're using all this rent that they've extracted over the years to acquire more and more content so they can vertically integrate. And, I mean, we're not going to see the death of the open web. We're just going to see the increasing irrelevance of it. And I'll just make a quick point. If you slow down the internet, like if you slow down an access to a website by even 250 milliseconds, like literally the blink of an eye, if it takes that much longer, there's documented study after study shows that those users will bolt. They'll close the tab. They'll, they'll tab over to Facebook or, or Reddit or some site that's not throttled. So all the ISPs has to do to basically eliminate all but the most reticent internet user is introduce a very slight delay a very slight latency into a website that doesn't pay. And they've basically negated that website's ability to grow its audience. Of course, the direction that this would actually lead is that, so because, you know, Comcast can't compete with Amazon for being a retailer and a cloud service provider. Comcast can't compete with Facebook to make a social media product. So the end result of less net neutrality would likely be that these giant companies would have to pay more or their end users would have to pay more to get the same level of service. So obviously, yes, there would be a penalty, there would be a financial penalty, but ultimately we would have, I mean, at least for people who are not highly price sensitive, they would have the same level of internet service in a post-net neutrality world. Do you agree with that? When you say the people who are not price sensitive, you're talking about the content providers who have the extra money to, Actually, to pay the rent. I'm talk- well, yes, either that or the that would be one thing, but also just consumers who can afford to pay their increased cable bill like if you you like oh you have to get comcast plus and get additional 250 you know less 250 milliseconds less of latency when accessing facebook basically right but it probably would be applied to specific websites and not the web as a whole because if you look Mm -hmm. at what these isps are traditionally 
they are in the very lucrative business of cable TV, right? The, certainly the fixed line providers. So Comcast, Cox, Penn Warner, which was acquired by Charter, they are in the business of basically selling these packages. Okay, you're a sports fan, so we're going to sell you ESP and one through three. That's an extra 10 bucks a month. Or, oh, you want premium channels, we'll, we'll package Showtime and HBO for you. So that's kind of what they'd like to do with the internet because it's extremely lucrative. It's way more lucrative than just providing a dumb pipe that just moves bits regardless of what's on them. Because what they're experiencing is younger people don't really care about having traditional TV. They'll just watch YouTube. They'll just watch Netflix. They don't really care about having a broad range of different cable packages because they can just explore the long tail of content online. And, you know, the internet is really like the ultimate medium that includes all the other mediums. You can listen to the radio on the internet. You can make phone calls on the internet. You can send texts over the internet. You can watch videos over the internet. You can do so many things on the internet that were traditionally standalone services, right? Like you used to pay five bucks extra to be able to text. <laughs> For example, I mean, even though texting is literally moving a few bits through the digital network, they, they considered it separate from internet access, like a data plan. So really that's a, that's a major issue. This is a random question. What is Mark Cuban's argument here? Because Mark Cuban is against net neutrality. I'm not sure what his argument is. There are a few prominent technologists like Mark Andreessen who are against net neutrality. And I think it's basically, they oppose it on ideological grounds. I don't think that they have done enough reading on what the actual you know macroeconomic implications will be. Basically handing all the power to these corporations that happen to bury a bunch of copper in the ground 30 or 40 years right. ago. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about yeah. corporations who invested decades ago, have recouped their investment 100 times over, and are now just basically kicking back and doing nothing, providing the worst customer service in America so that people can use their, their pipes. Yeah, that's the thing that I worry about because, you know, it's like Mark Cuban or Mark Andreessen might have, you know, having built their businesses in the internet age where competing on the world of internet platforms things move very fast you know you don't have to dig a hole in the ground and lay a bunch of copper you just build a new website but here we're talking about a bottleneck and really no way around it unless we're talking about elon musk sending satellites into space and beaming down internet or google sending up balloons or facebook beaming down internet i think you know, well, maybe maybe I'd be mistaken, but I think that the business models, like let's say Google owned this copper, or Facebook owned this copper, or SpaceX owned this copper, they would take much longer term approaches to extracting value from that copper. They would take higher value, longer term approaches. But my sense is that a company like Comcast is really going to just try to squeeze as much profit as fast as possible in ways that will probably exploit people in very uh, unfortunate and unfortunate fashion. And the problem with taking the perhaps Mark Andreessen or Mark Cuban approach, again, not really knowing what their positions are, but assuming that they fall into that, oh, it's the internet, we'll have creative destruction sort of thing. The problem is that there's not a short enough, it's not going to be a short time horizon for that creative destruction. It's going to take, like you said, with AT&T, a long time. Absolutely. And and I I just want to 100% agree with you there. I'm optimistic that SpaceX and Google will disrupt fixed line carriers by providing satellite or low orbiting balloon high-speed internet. I think that's 
the most likely disruptive force. And also SoftBank recently said that they were also going to try to get an array of satellites. To give you an idea of the costs involved, <laughs> you're launching thousands, of, like literally, I think, more than a thousand satellites for these satellite arrays. And, and these satellites come down regularly. They're in low orbit, so they don't even stay up that long. So we're talking about, you know, thousands of satellite launches over the next 10 or 20 years. That will make a big deal. That'll that'll be huge because then it'll force, like you'll have these more forward-looking, long-term thinking organizations. I mean, the epitome of which is probably Amazon is the most forward-thinking, long-term thinking. In fact, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, has contributed heavily to the Long Now Foundation, which mm-hmm. basically aims to look at things from a human history perspective and think 10,000 years into the future and not merely, you know, a quarter into the future, which is what I think most of these old school ISPs are doing. I mean, they're literally, you've got like 10th generation CEOs who are, you know, finance people who are just trying to make ends meet and they may have some long-term plans. I mean, the fact that they have such sophisticated lobbying efforts belies the fact that they do think somewhat in the long term because it's a long game to try to well, get they're, the they're, right people. Their their long-term time horizon is buy some content so that we can jack up the prices on the pipes that are not that content. Right. Yeah. I mean, and by providing the content, in many ways they're they're just trying to figure out ways that they can they're really just trying to figure out how they can turn the internet back into cable. I think that yeah. that's their game plan. So that they can package, you know, you've got the news package and you get access to the New York Times and you get access to the Washington Ugh. Post. I mean, it basically, there's this great kind of, it's kind of like a mock infographic of what what your cable plan could look like, your, your <laughs> cable modem plan. And it's just, it's outraging, but that... It makes sense from their perspective because mm-hmm. they made so much more money back then than they do now. Right now they're making, you know, $16 billion, but at some scale that's not enough, right? Like the investors just get more and more demanding and it's hard to explain to them to think long term because a lot of investors are not in it for the long term. I can just imagine the series of checkboxes where Check here if you're going to download podcasts. Check here if you're going to use Facebook. Check here if you're going to use Quora. And like that's what it could certainly be, just like with cable. Okay, I think we have beaten this topic pretty severely, although we can touch on it more tangentially. I want to talk about Facebook, because you and I have had some fantastic conversations about Facebook. You wrote an article called, I Can't Just Stand By and Watch Mark Zuckerberg Destroy the Internet. And this was all before Zuckerberg wrote his 6,000-page book report about Facebook. How does Mark Zuckerberg threaten to destroy the Internet? By consolidating the Internet, you have to consider Internet.org, which I know you've done a show about. Basically, Internet.org was an attempt to replace the internet with Facebook under the guise of providing people access to things like Wikipedia as well. And in many countries, especially the most impoverished countries in the world, they have internet org and people are able to get on their phone and access a handful of websites, primarily Facebook. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg wants to continue to grow Facebook. He wants to continue to pervade our lives and absorb more and more hours of our day. If you look at mobile traffic, something like somewhere between one-fifth and one-fourth of all mobile data traffic is to and from Facebook. Like, people use Facebook 50 minutes a day, the average Facebook user, and there are almost 2 billion Facebook users. So it's literally become this massive attention sink. Like, they're absorbing so much attention. As a result, they can 
They are the premier place that you place ads. If you really want to have people see your product and get exposed to it, the most reliable way to do that these days is to get a Facebook ad and, and narrowly target it. It's very effective. You know, FreeCodeCamp hasn't ever done any Facebook advertising, but if we had like some product that we were trying to sell, like a software as a service solution, you better believe that Facebook would be the number one destination for trying to raise awareness of it because it's so effective. Because Facebook is so effective and it's so sticky and they've got they've absorbed so many brilliant user experience designers, so many brilliant engineers who are speeding things up and making things run great. They're just becoming this practically inassailable. It's it's very difficult to anticipate how you would go about disrupting Facebook. I don't think there's going to be another big social media network. It's going to be something else that comes in and disrupts it. But basically, until that happens, <laughs> Facebook is for many people, the internet, many people who use the internet, like they've done surveys. A lot of people who use the internet who use Facebook through the internet don't actually realize they're using the internet. For them, Facebook is the internet. Yeah, so this is the study that for me was not troubling at all because when people started using browsers, they thought that browsers were the internet. Browsers are not the internet. When people started using AOL, they thought that AOL was the internet. AOL is not the internet. The same thing is true for Facebook. So this paranoia about people confusing Facebook with the internet, we've been through this before. Why is it more problematic with Facebook? So AOL, you could access the open internet through it. That was you one could of the... access a browser. Yeah, I mean, you could access a browser and you could go anywhere you wanted on the internet through it. It wasn't a true walled garden where but you, you could you could say out. that about browsers right like you you know you can't you can't do everything that you can do in a terminal with a browser well that's true in the sense that you're only able to use certain protocols but i think for human readable information <laughs> for what a human wants to accomplish and and yes this is somewhat of a concession here but like if i want to read something or if i want to watch something or if i want to make a phone call like pretty much everything is being packaged where it can be used in the browser and increasingly, more and more software can run in the browser. You've got a wide variety of browsers, so there's not a clear browser monopoly. Firefox is doing fine. Mobile Safari has a significant chunk of the mobile browser market as well. And there are new entrants into the browser space. There are open source libraries like WebKit that you can take and you can go build your own browser and, and steer people toward that. And you know, Facebook is literally owned by a single corporation, right? And that single corporation is controlled by a single individual who has 60% of the voting rights, Mark Zuckerberg. He's the most powerful person in the world. And he can basically dictate, he could just pick up the phone and call, tweak the algorithms that their recommendation engine uses to, to bias them in some way or another. Now, whether he would actually use his power in such a brazen way we don't know. And unfortunately, we don't have any insight into that because it's a big black box, right? We see their financials come out. We see their public statements. But basically, we have to take his word at face value because we don't understand the inner workings of Facebook. They're, they're closed source. They're closed data. And their data is precisely, you know, their value and, and the brand recognition that comes along with Facebook. When people open up a, a browser, they'll often intuitively type Facebook without even thinking. They'll just be like, oh, I'm back on Facebook because people go there so many times a day. It's become kind of ingrained in the human psyche. Like that's where you go to announce that somebody died. That's where you go to announce that you got engaged. That's where you post your, your first baby photos. You know, it, it's become such an important 
cultural and sociologically significant place that it has so much power. And it's unlikely, if you look at AOL, there's still 2 million people who pay for AOL. Even this day and age, like this is like 20 years past AOL's prime. So Facebook is going to cast a very long shadow. It's not going away anytime soon. And all signs seem to indicate that Facebook is growing more and more powerful with every passing year. They're absorbing more and more brilliant engineers and user experience designers. They're absorbing more money through advertisers who, you know, it's a runaway virtuous circle that's virtuous for Facebook, but is deleterious for anybody who wants to enter the market and try to compete with them. Certainly. And yet there are things that Facebook cannot do. That's why I spend, you know, 16 hours of the day on the internet. I probably only spend an hour on Facebook. There's 15 sixteenths of the internet that Facebook cannot service me for. And some of those things seem directly, in fact, not really aligned with what Facebook really is. There's certainly a world in which Facebook is able to swallow the entire internet experience where Facebook is able to you know, I, I've written about this. I think they're going to build some either a mobile phone or either they're waiting for the next paradigm of hardware devices. VR. But, you know, react. <laughs> Speak no further. VR. They are going to be the market leader in VR, I suspect. Maybe, but also, there, you know, it's undefined whether people really want VR. I mean, how much people want VR. We can certainly make predictions about that. You can say the you same know, thing I, I, for looking at Apple Newtons or Palm Pilots, you know. It wasn't clear that people were going to want mobile phones, but now it is clear that... And, and I think that if you look at the science fiction, VR is prominent, holodecks are prominent, and I think holodecks may be a possibility within the next 20 or 30 years. We don't know what's possible, but, but Facebook already has a huge R&D edge on all those things, and they can basically get out ahead of trends. They've got by far the most powerful machine learning algorithms, and they're doing amazing stuff like rivaling Google in a lot of areas of artificial intelligence. So it's going to be very difficult to outflank them. And they're, they are moving into, they're moving into other horizontals, or I'm sorry, other verticals. They're already extremely vertically integrated, and they're going to swallow up video, which is something they've been working on for a while. And they're going to start offering original content as well. And, you know, like I said, I think VR is going to be huge, and they're so far out ahead of everybody else that it's going to be very difficult to unseat them. And they already have this massive engaged audience of 2 billion users. Like if they release some sort of beta of a product, they've already got like 2 billion users and they can take a very small sliver of that and test it and then just gradually roll it out to everybody. It's a huge competitive advantage. So Zuckerberg came out with this manifesto where he basically said, the world is going towards globalization. Facebook wants to be a facilitator of globalization. And... Ben Thompson did a really good piece on this. He actually did two pieces. He did a piece and then he did a podcast about it. The Exponent Podcast is one of my favorite podcasts. But what he said was, so Ben Thompson and the co-host of that show, James Allworth, have been talking about Facebook for a long time. And for a long time, Ben has basically said it's not a problem. Like Facebook's potential monopoly on media is not a problem because if Facebook were to start making subjective decisions, editorial decisions about the content that did well on Facebook, it would damage their credibility. It would hurt their potential business model because their business model is to be is to not arbitrate that. But what Ben Thompson is now suggesting with 
the whole manifesto thing is that Zuckerberg is making a strong political statement when he says Facebook is going to be the tool for globalism. And he says that this is so worrying that you have now somebody who is such a massive arbitrator of information who is taking a side that is essentially partisan. And he starts to suggest things that Facebook should be disallowed from doing. For example, buying other social networks. You know, he says that every social network should allow you to export contacts so that you can easily move your social network between providers. What do you think of this idea that we need to start taking regulatory mechanisms against Facebook? I'm not sure exactly how we would do this because this is an unprecedented situation. Facebook, unlike other, you know, physical utility monopoly is an attention monopoly. And it's probably the most intractable situation ever in terms of antitrust because it's it's just so unprecedented and you know like i i'm not going to tell people to delete facebook i'm not deleting facebook i think that it is valuable in in many respects i'm not going to jump on like if like people launched some, these different social networks recently elo you know twitter itself has proven to be mostly a domain for the ists the economists and the futurists and the journalists podcastists yeah podcasts and not so much a domain for the everyday person which is unfortunate because i get a lot of value out of twitter too but you know it's not clear what you would replace facebook with or how you would even compete with it i think it's going to be some totally out of left field disruptive force that disrupts Mm -hmm. facebook and who knows how many decades that could be down the road Mm -hmm. all right well so we're up against time I know you are giving a talk at South by Southwest. I think when this airs, probably you will have given that talk already. Hopefully it will be online. Maybe we could put it in the show notes or something. It's called, well, I think it's part of a series of talks that is called Tech Under Trump. Can you maybe in the net, just in, you know, two or three minutes, give an overview of what are the other things that we haven't discussed that are relevant in the tech under Trump world? Well, I'm going to talk a lot about Ajit Pai, the commissioner of the FCC, which is the only organization that has the ability to really regulate the ISPs. I'm going to talk about him being appointed and the fact that they have a two-thirds majority. Two of the seats on the FCC are empty right now. So basically it's two anti-regulation versus one pro-regulation vote. So they're basically able to do whatever they need to do. And they're carrying out the agenda of the ISPs and the ISP lobby. So I'll talk about that a little bit. I'll also talk about the role of Facebook and Google in kind of centralizing the web. And I will also give some basic insights about why I think net neutrality is so important to small businesses and just everyday people who want to be able to use the internet and want to have the the open library of Alexandria that we have now, we want to see that going forward. All right, Quincy. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily once again, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you. It's regrettable that I don't have you in San Francisco anymore to go on runs with and debate these topics in person, but... I do look forward to seeing you next time I see you. Likewise, Jeff. I'll be out there soon, and we'll go on another run. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheers. Cheers.